James chapter 5, we find ourselves with one more significant section to consider before we wrap up our journey through this letter. We just finished three weeks in verses 1 through 12, where James encourages us, await the Lord's return patiently. And we were reminded not only that we should have a growing sense of anticipation for Christ to return to us, but also that we should be patiently steadfast in our obedience to the Lord, even in the face of pressure or opposition, especially with how we regard one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, We were going through that last sermon even as this terrible conflict began to erupt in the nation of Israel. It didn't catch God by surprise, but whenever something happens over there in that part of the world, it does catch us by surprise. And it's interesting how the whole world focus goes on that part of the world. And we start thinking and we start looking at news and we start wondering, is, are we getting closer to the time of the Lord's return? When you feel that, when you sense that, then realize this is how we should be feeling all the time. And that's what James was reminding us of in those verses. There ought to be an impatience we fight after. And as we follow the Lord, as we are obedient to Him, God grows that, uh, that anticipation within us. But now, James makes a quick transition to his last big subject that we find in verses 13 through 18. I think you'll be able to clearly see what that subject is as we begin reading this entire text. Let's write or start right at the beginning. Verse, verse 13, James says this, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Can anyone then identify the subject or the theme of this last large section of the book of James? James urges the verb, uh, he, he, he uses the verb pray and the noun prayer eight times in this section. In fact, a form of the word pray appears in every verse that we just read. In verse 13, to those who are suffering, James says, let him pray. To those who are cheerful, James says, let him sing praise. Now, it might seem that James is addressing both ends of the continuum here of our feelings, right? Suffering on the one end and happiness on the other. And we're sad, we pray, and we're happy, we praise. But as we're going to see, praise is also a form of prayer directed to God. 
in verse 14, the one who is sick is instructed to call for the elders of the church so that they can pray for him. In verse 15, the prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick. In verse 16, we're expected to pray for one another. And in verses 17 and 18, Elijah's prayer life is offered as a huge example an encouragement to us regarding what prayer can accomplish. What God is showing us here through James is that the miracle of the rain not coming on the earth for so long a time, and then the miracle of it coming suddenly is tied to Elijah's prayer life. And it says that he prayed with prayer. Or with prayer, he prayed. That's a very Hebrew way of saying he really prayed. He prayed fervently. But the central statement that I think in this, in this entire section is found in the second half of verse 16. It says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Every statement in the whole paragraph leading up to this statement is a call to pray or an explanation about how prayer works or an example of, of how she, we should follow prayer. Everything leading up to that statement and everything after that statement has something to do with it. But the second half of verse 16 is a foundational observation that ties everything together. If you're a righteous person, and our righteousness is derived from Jesus Christ, your prayer has the potential to be powerfully effective. The sentence can literally read, the prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much when it is effective, when it is working, when it is put into operation when it is put into practice. Isn't it true that so often we don't see God work through prayer, not because He is incapable or because we are not trying to follow Him, but, but simply because we're not praying? We're not putting prayer into practice? Hasn't James already told us back in chapter 4, verse 2? He, he literally tells us in that verse, you do not have because you do not ask. God knows this, and yet He wants to work through our prayers. He wants to respond to our childlike cries for help, our shouts of confident praise. So He graciously brings trouble into our lives. You know that God does that? We, I, I know sometimes we're very careful to say, well, God didn't do this. He allowed it. Okay, well, sometimes God did it. He does. He brings trouble into our lives. We see that in Scripture. He brings it into our lives so that we get back on our knees when things are going along as well as we can expect and we don't sense any pressing need to ask for help beyond what we already consider ourselves capable of accomplishing. We don't pray like we should because we don't see ourselves as desperate or vulnerable or in need of mercy. So God reminds us we were reminded this week, I think, how vulnerable and helpless we are as we watched and listened with horror to the reports coming in of these unspeakable and inhumane acts of violence committed against innocent Israeli people. 
and against other nationalities, including Americans, the, the, the number of Americans who were killed, and, and we don't know how, continues to grow. So now there's war, and war is ugly. In war, soldiers die, and civilians die. And we're going to continue to see terrible things played out in this war if we keep watching. And it, I, I think it hits close to home for us because we know that the same kind of thing could happen here. It's already happened here. We, we call it 911. And because we know that there are terrorist cells already in the U.S., they're on the FBI watch list, we, we, we hear these rumors of things going on. We, we, we are reminded, it's not like it's fresh information, it just hits close to home and reminds us it could happen. And we start feeling vulnerable. We keep hearing rumors of more terrorists potentially who have come on U.S. soil with the millions of immigrants who continue to pour over the southern border. And I'm, I'm not making a political statement here, I'm just saying that we're not naive. We, we know this could happen. So this week, I kept hearing the call to prayer. And I sometimes repeated the call myself. And there was a particular call that I think a lot of you may have heard this week. We find it in Psalm 122. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Yeah, you've heard it too. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. What does it mean to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Well, peace does not just mean war has stopped. In the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, where it is written in Hebrew, peace is shalom. It means a matter of wholeness, completeness, everything at rest, everything put to rights. It means being in harmony with God and in harmony with others. That's shalom. That was what shalom is throughout the Old Testament when the Jewish people were trying to follow God. And there is one essential that must exist in order for this kind of peace to be realized, and that is loving and consistent fellowship with and obedience to God's will. That's the only way this kind of shalom can happen. God created the world with perfect shalom, but that shalom was shattered through disobedience and love of self more than love of God. When God chose a people for himself, the Israelites, and gave them the law and the tabernacle, it was to provide for them a means by which to love and obey him and to keep in fellowship with him through the sacrifices. So in Psalm 22, where this prayer comes from, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, the reason the psalmist is journeying to Jerusalem is because the temple is standing there. It's a place where God told them to gather, to worship the place where the Israelites come into his presence with their sacrifices to renew their fellowship, renew their harmony with him. It's where they realize shalom once again. The psalmist says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. There is both the, the place of worship here, you notice, in Jerusalem and the thrones of David because people would come to be judged according to the law that God had given them. So it's a place of worship and a place of following the law, Jerusalem is. And both of those are necessary for shalom. You have to have obedience and you have to have harmony with God. Or as Psalm 33 puts it, praise is fitting for the upright 
So in this psalm, there's an anticipation of arriving in Jerusalem because this is the city where one can be assured of shalom, peace with God, through honoring God. And when one truly is at peace with God, he or she is also in peace with others who are at peace with God. And so important is this city for this reason that the psalmist says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, the temple, I will seek your good. The urgent prayer request for peace for Jerusalem, for its security, for its prosperity, is because this is where true peace with God was realized through the sacrifices. And one day, Jesus, the Son of God, arrived, and he looked upon Jerusalem and thought of its history and its lack of peace within its walls. And Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus offers his own life in payment for their sins so that one day he could bring true peace to Jerusalem and that people would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And today, no one has to make a pilgrimage to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem to find fellowship with God through sacrifices because of the one sacrifice of Christ, the house of the Lord comes to us when we place our faith in him. And we become indwelled by the Holy Spirit, who is a spirit of peace, who produces the fruit of peace. So Paul says, having been justified through faith, we have shalom with God. Well, it's erene in the Greek, but it's the same idea. We have peace with God. We have shalom with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This means that the only way that Jerusalem will ever have true peace, okay, if we're praying for peace for Jerusalem, the only way that Jerusalem will ever have true peace is when the inhabitants of Jerusalem turn to the Lord and are saved. All of them, not just the Israelis, but the Muslims as well. So when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we should pray for the cessation of conflict and we can pray for harmony between Israelites and Palestinians, but those prayers are empty dreams unless we also are praying for their salvation. So our reality check is that we should have already been praying for the peace of Jerusalem. The Lord in his wisdom has allowed this conflict in Israel to happen for many reasons, which are probably far beyond our ability to understand. But at the least, this conflict has turned our attention in their direction that we might pray more faithfully and more fervently for their souls. Now, how are we going to do that effectively? How are we going to pray for them and for our needs and for the needs of our church and for those whom we love? How are we going to pray effectively so that we know our prayers have a great ability in their impact because God is using them? James is not offering us here a manual on prayer, but clustered around this admonition that prayer can have great power as it is working, there are several ways of praying that make prayer 
effective. And here they all are. Simply put, the text teaches us to pray personally, pray corporately, pray righteously, pray fervently, pray consistently. I'm giving you all of them now because I'm only going to deal with number one. You know that's happening probably. Uh, but I, I wanted you to see this all. And, 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 and perhaps next week we will make it through the other four. But this morning, I want to just focus on this first way for a few moments and, and just sort of slow down and think about our own prayer life. Uh, some of you probably, when, when you thought, oh, here's the theme of the text, it's prayer, that's too bad because now I'm going to sit here and feel guilty the whole time, okay? There are some sermons that are very much preached but very little lived, by God's people, Be- especially in our day and age when we're running and doing things so often, but we are not teaching ourselves to pray. We don't develop that habit of prayer, okay? Keep in mind that our growth in the Lord is a product of His loving grace in our lives. You don't have to sit there and beat yourself up. Just say, okay, yeah, I need to grow in this area. We all need to grow in this area. And this is why James is giving this kind of practical admonition to Jewish believers who are trying to figure out, how do I live my life as a Christian now? That I'm trusting in Christ. In in the Jewish culture, they had particular times they would pray every single day, and probably a lot of them went through the motions there's, there's, in the Muslim world, calls to prayer. Well, in the, in, the, in the Jewish world, there were calls to pray. Morning, noon, and night, I pray to you, the psalm says. And so it, prayer was not an abstract idea. Prayer was not something they had never heard of before. But James is trying to say, here's how you pray so that your prayer is effective. And that's what we want to focus on. And the first feature of prayer that makes it effective is when we pray personally. In other words, we put prayer into operation. We pray. We do it. That's really our biggest issue when it comes to prayer. We fail to spend time in prayer. And the first avenue of prayer we don't spend time at is personal prayer, taking time during the course of our daily routine to pray. And yes, it's really good that we are in an attitude of prayer, that we can say prayers to God in our hearts throughout the day. I feel like we we probably do that kind of thing. Uh, Our our mind turns to the Lord and we cry out to Him. That's really good that we do that. It's part of our relationship with the Lord. But James here is referring to identifiable times that we spend communing with God. We set everything aside and we talk to the Lord. And we're not going to know effectiveness of prayer until we take the time to pray. James says we have to pray personally. And he says we pray personally in response to two different circumstances. And here they are, right, in verse 13, in times of suffering and in times of rejoicing. Because he says in verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is, if any, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And as I already said, God wants us to pray and he will bring suffering into our lives so that we pray. But he also brings cheer or gladness into our lives so that we praise him. Let's talk about suffering first. This is not suffering sickness per se, although it might include that. He's going to talk about sickness specifically in verse 14. So we'll get there next week, Lord willing. 
Suffering here is a general suffering or hardship or trouble due to evil that is in the world because of the fall. That is not embedded in the, the linguistic part of the verse. It's not embedded in the words of the verse, but it's in the context. It's because of evil, and we know that evil is in the world because of the fall. Because of evil in human hearts, people suffer. And I put it that way because the only other time this word is used in the New Testament, it, it clearly refers to suffering at the hands of evildoers, especially in the context of serving God. Paul uses the word twice in 2 Timothy when he says in 2 Timothy 2.9 that he suffered for the sake of the gospel because he was imprisoned in chains like a criminal. He uses this word, suffering. And when he challenges Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 5, be sober-minded, endure suffering. There's the word. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. It's the same word that James uses in the same chapter if you have your Bibles there and look back at verse 10 when he says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. At the beginning of this chapter, remember, James describes the suffering that many of the recipients of this letter endured at the hands of the rich landowners. James says that these wicked men withheld the workers' wages by fraud to make themselves even more rich, and they essentially condemned and murdered innocent, righteous people. We read that in verses 1 through 6 of this chapter. When the Israelis suffered this week, when Hamas terrorists attacked them, it was an extreme example of this kind of suffering because these were innocent people who suffered extreme violence unawares from depraved wickedness of human hearts. That's the kind of trouble that's going on here. Those who received James' letter knew what suffering was. They knew what trouble was. It's the reason James begins his entire letter, remember, with a reference to their trials and hardship back in chapter 1. Now, how should you respond when you go through hardship like this, especially hardship that you experience as you're trying to live for the Lord and please Him and follow Him and serve Him, James says you should pray. And he's talking about personal prayer. You should take the initiative to bring your trouble before the throne of God and ask Him for help and strength and deliverance and endurance. When you experience any trouble, any hardship or tears brought about because of the fallen world in which we live, especially as a direct result of walking with the Lord, James says, let him pray. Now hold that thought for just a second and let's look at the next application. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Now I said earlier that it might look like James is addressing two extremes here, sadness and happiness, and telling us that we should pray this way or that way depending on our state of emotion. When you're burdened down, you cry out to God, and when you're happy and you know it, you clap your hands, right? And you, you, you praise the Lord. But the word cheerful is not necessarily the state of glee or elation. It's more like courage. That's what that word is. Gladness. True gladness. In the face of hardship. It's the kind of cheer that Paul and Silas experienced even after they had been beaten and were confined in the inner prison with their feet in stocks in the city of Philippi. Remember that? 
Acts 16.25 says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Notice both things are there. They're praying and they're singing hymns to God. Those two things go in hand in hand, praying and singing, because both are directed to God. In fact, the, the verb humneo, that's where we get our word whom or him, that means to sing a song of praise, magnifying a great person. And here, James literally says, let him sing psalms. That's the verb solo, where we get our word psalms. But we shouldn't be surprised because humno is a, is a Greek word from Greek culture. Psalmo is Jewish, like the recipients of this letter. Why might one of these believers be cheerful or glad? Perhaps it was because they brought their trouble to the Lord in prayer and God sustained them and their, their, their sorrow turns to gladness. But you don't stop praying. You don't stop communing with God when that happens. You continue to pray. You praise the Lord. This is how God works through prayer. This is why Paul's trouble in Philippi blossomed into song. Though his body was severely wounded and being beaten with rods was nothing like you would ever want to experience. Though his body was racked with pain and he was bruised and bleeding and he was in this dark, awful place, confined uncomfortably in the stocks, he didn't know he was going to escape right away. He first prayed and then he sang. And that's why Paul was able to write to the Philippians with confidence several years later to many of them who had been there on that night when he was in prison, telling them in chapter 4, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Almost every time Paul calls for prayer, he includes thanksgiving. And he says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think what James is doing here in this text is not merely addressing two human extremes of emotion, sadness and happiness. I think he's talking about both sorrow and joy and, and that you and I will experience both of these. And sometimes we will transition from one to the other if we are living faithfully for the Lord and if we are walking with him in prayer. When there is trouble, it is right for us to cry out to the Lord. And when we know his strength and peace and gladness and cheer, even in the midst of hardship, before the trouble goes away, it is right for us to praise him and even sing to God. Now, I said a minute ago, James doesn't offer a manual on prayer. He is talking to Jews who pray and they have the Psalms. And he expects them to know something about this subject already. But it's interesting that James says, let him sing psalms. And really, you could, you could translate this, let him psalm sing. Because the book of psalms that these Jewish believers would have known inside and out teaches both how to pray and how to praise. Do you want to learn how to pray better? Not just more, but better? Can you learn how to pray better? Of course you can. Meditate on the Psalms and use the Psalms as patterns for your prayer. It's, it's one of the reasons God gave us the Psalms. We need instruction in how to pray and how to pray. Have you ever wondered why so many of these Psalms are nothing more than prayers? God is teaching us through them. There are particular Psalms, in fact, that walk us through how to respond 
in times of trouble. And really, one of the reasons I wasn't going any further in this text is I wanted to take a few moments before we are concluding here and look at one of these psalms as an example of the kind of prayer James is talking about. So if you have your Bibles there and would like to turn back to the Old Testament, we're going to look at Psalm chapter 13. Psalm chapter 13, I could have gone to chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 7, 13, 17, etc., etc., They're all psalms which do the same thing you're going to see here in chapter 13. The thing about chapter 13 is that it's only six verses long, okay? And it's a a microcosm of what you see expanded in other psalms. So it's a good illustration of the pattern that we find in many of the psalms that teach us how to cry out to God in times of distress and how to come to a place of gratitude, a place of cheer, a place of hope. So the psalmist begins, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Which means they're winning. How long are you going to let this go on, Lord? Now, there are several features of these psalms that I'm talking about that you'll begin to recognize the patterns in for your own prayer and praise if you immerse in them. I, I mean, there, there are about 15 different features actually in these Psalms. I, after I get past four or five, for me personally, I start losing track, okay? I think it's really helpful to say, okay, I, I, I at least do this many. But as, as, uh, as you read the Psalms, as you continue to be faithful in your scripture reading privately of the Psalms, you will notice these and you'll start mimicking them in your prayers if you're conscious about it. I'm going to call attention then to five of these features, and they're not only features, they're not the only features, but they're, they're the ones I think that really help us when we pray. And here's the first one, it's complaining. That's what the psalmist is doing in verses one through two. He's laying out his complaint before God. God, have you forgotten me? Did you forget I was here? Don't you see what they're doing to me? Have you ever asked God that before? Are you sleeping? What's happening? Why is this continuing? You might think that is somewhat disrespectful. I mean, who am I to complain to God? Who am I to question him? God, after all, is in complete control and he knows all things and he always does what is wise and good. I think we're in for a shallow prayer life if we immediately conclude that and we don't wrestle with God because that's not what the psalmists do. We can have this kind of attitude of, uh, you know, God's in control, he's got this, and, and throw a quick prayer to God and go on with our life and never develop a deep relationship with God at all. The truth is, our firm belief in God's goodness and love and power and wisdom and his promises are the very reasons we question God. Because it makes no sense to us in the moment of this trial that God who loves us like a father and tends us like a shepherd is letting this terrible situation come up in our lives. So when things in our life starting are starting to unravel when they start coming apart. If we truly believe that God is who he says he is and we are walking with him and we know him and we love him, there's been a consistency in that. We ought to have questions in our mind. Ask them. 
complain to God. Don't grumble to God. That's not the same thing. Grumbling is a lack of faith. It's it's when you say, I know better than God. Don't grumble. Don't be ungrateful. But tell God what is troubling you from a heart of faith. Just be honest with God. Be real. It's okay to respond like Peter in the boat when the raging storm is going on and the only person who can save them appears to be sleeping in the boat. And he, he wakes the Lord and says, Master, don't you care that we are perishing? Uh, in, in the contemporary vernacular, we may say, don't you care we're going to die? That's what Peter says to the Lord. It's okay to respond to our trials like David when he was attempting to escape death at the hand of Saul. He says to God, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. This isn't a sign of a bad relationship with God. It's a sign of a genuine relationship with God. A sign of a heart of faith. You know who God is, and that's why this doesn't make sense. So the first feature of effective prayer in times of trial, according to the Psalms, is complaining. The second and third we find in the next verses. He says in verse 3, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. A very poetic phrase there. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. The, The The second element is pleading, that is asking God for help. And it's hard to discern in this psalm, because it's brief, exactly what David's situation is here, but it seems to be the context of war, and he's afraid he might be killed. But notice that David is pleading for God to answer. He's earnest about his situation. He even becomes poetical in the psalm. And this is when our prayers become very focused and very real, when God allows us to sense our desperation. And God is trying to help us to understand the only way we can really find any kind of happiness, any kind of joy, any kind of fulfillment is if we deepen in our relationship with Him. So we plead to God, but I want to go immediately to a third feature of prayer in time of trouble that's here in these same verses, and that is arguing arguing. You might not have thought of complaining or arguing as parts of prayer, but they're all throughout the psalm. Pleading, we're familiar with that. But arguing? In other words, giving God reasons why he needs to answer you and to do what you are asking him. Laying out your reasons, your arguments. Too often our prayers stop at, Father, please take care of this problem. And we might describe the problem or ask for specific solutions, guide the doctors and give them wisdom, provide the money, give safety, give me grace. And that's all great. But in the Psalms, the prayers go further than that. And if you're paying attention, you'll see this everywhere. The psalmist gives reasons that his request should be answered. He wrestles with God. In this brief example, David lays out two arguments. You you see them there because they're marked with the word lest. The first is in line two, where David suggests that he is going to die if God doesn't do something, lest I sleep the sleep of death. And then David argues that his enemies would have cause for rejoicing if that happens, if he dies, lest my foes rejoice. 
So it's very brief here, his argumentation, but it's there. And David doesn't draw out the implications of the two results, but he does in other Psalms. If David dies and his enemies rejoice and the promise of God to establish his throne is null and void, and God's enemies will also rejoice. And David says in other Psalms, God, you wouldn't want that to happen for the enemies to triumph and say their gods are greater than you. You wouldn't want that to happen, would you? And we see these kinds of arguments in the prayers in the Psalms, arguments that if God doesn't answer, his enemies will triumph, his power will be mocked, he will look weaker than idols, and that he will let the poor and helpless be trampled on, and God loves the poor and helpless. He loves the widows, he loves the orphans, he loves the weak. And the psalmist will sometimes say, you're, you're going to let the weak get the short end of the stick here if you don't do something. Or that the psalmist will be silenced in death and he'll no longer be able to praise God and serve God. Do you ever present arguments? Do you put your case before God? Is there a reason that if he moves on your behalf, it will bring glory to him and blessing to you and to other people? How will God answer how will God's answer to this prayer advance the gospel? How will it allow you to serve him? How will it allow you to, to be a blessing to others? How will God's answer to this request magnify his mercy and his grace and his power? Now, we're not arguing arrogantly. We don't have greater wisdom than God. We, we can't impress him, change the course of human history just because of our argumentation with God, although God works through prayer. But it's one of the ways we take the matter of prayer seriously. It keeps us from going just through the motions. It keeps us engaged, and it tests our ability to truly seek what God seeks. If you start laying out an argument for why God should answer your prayer in this way, sometimes you'll think, you know what, that's not really a good argument because that is not at the heart of God. That is not at the heart of truth. And you start thinking differently about your trial. When the authors of the Psalms are in trouble, we see them complaining and we see them pleading and we see them arguing. We, we need to wrestle with God in prayer. Even Jesus wrestles with the Father in prayer on the night that he is betrayed. But there are two other features in their prayers in the Psalms that we find, and we find these in, reflected in verses 5 and 6. The fourth is trusting. Verse 5, I have trusted in your steadfast love my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. This is the turning point that we see in many of the Psalms. And a lot of you already know this. You see this often when you read the Psalms. There's a, a trial and a cry, and then there's a, a section of trust in, in a lot of the Psalms. We hear of the trial through the complaining and the pleading and often the arguing, but something happens when we come before the Lord and pray to Him for real, not just throwing up a quick request, but wrestling with Him. We are no longer simply onlookers waiting to see what God will do. We become participants in what God is doing. And God increases our trust and our confidence in His will. And we come away from a time of prayer like this, still maybe not knowing exactly what God is going to do on our behalf or on behalf of somebody else that we're praying for, but the re with a renewed confidence that we can trust God, that he's going to work in a way that brings him glory and his people good. And this renewed confidence and trust and assurance is what leads us to the fifth feature that I was going to mention, and that is thanking. And that's in verse six, I will sing to the Lord 
That's a song of thanksgiving because he has dealt bountifully with me. By the way, the new song that you hear about in Psalms is this kind of song. Uh, the, the, the expression is always in the context of something that God did to rescue somebody, and it's this, this refreshed heart of praise. We begin to thank the Lord before we even have the answer to the request. David says, I will sing to the Lord. That's a verb of praise. And notice the verb is singing again. When we pray in time of trouble, we need to end by thanking the Lord, not only in advance for whatever He decides, but thanking Him for sustaining us right here during the time of prayer, during the midst of the trial. And there's something about prayer that changes our heart to praise. The psalm has moved them from praying in time of trouble to singing in time of cheer. And that's exactly what we find in verse 13 of James chapter 5. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. We have ample opportunity to obey this verse because we all have times of trouble or we're praying for someone else who is going through times of trouble. That's why we have a prayer list. It's not just for Wednesday night. We, we send it out to everybody so that you're aware of what we're doing to sustain our brothers and sisters in Christ in the congregation through prayer, which is effective. When you pray, don't worry about how much time you're spending as if God will be moved if we spend a longer time. That's what happens when we start saying, okay, I really, really need to pray. Okay, I'm going to pray for five minutes. I'm just going to make a pattern. I'm going to make a habit. So we sort of time ourselves. I, my, my advice is forget about that. Just accomplish certain things as you pray that are biblical. The time will expand on its own. Jesus criticizes the Gentiles because they think their prayers are heard just because they use a lot of words. God is not impressed because we can use a lot of words. Rather, he wants us to focus on accomplishing the features of genuine prayer. Come with a complaint and a plea and an argument, and with expressions of trust, and with a song of thanks. Pray the Psalms to God after you read them, applying the words to your own situation. You can take Psalm 13 and begin to just pray this back to God, even as the psalmist wrote it, just inserting your own ideas of where your situation is, where you're wondering, God, why haven't you taken care of this yet? And, and here's why you need to act and I'm going to thank you for what you're doing. Do this rather than simply stringing words together in a request or simply praying in earnest. And your prayer life will deepen. This is a wonderful section in James on prayer. And I think it's going to teach us some things as we take a little bit of time and look closely at the larger context of these words. Because prayer is one of the most essential ways we demonstrate that we believe in God, that we really believe he's there that he is who he claims to be, which means that prayer is one of the most essential ways that we live up to our faith. And that's why James has so much to teach us. Father, thank you for...